This is the Life Therapy with Zeta podcast. I'm Zeta. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Conversations with Ourselves. Today I am in conversation with Kelvin Omad and together we discuss overcoming, overcoming mental health issues and overcoming trauma, loss, sorrow, grief. In a time when we are facing a global pandemic, key workers have come to the forefront of our attention. Every Thursday, we go out and we clap for nurses, carers, postmen, garbage collectors, and key workers, the artery that supports our well-being and our lives. I wanted to know who or what had supported a key worker, where had they come from? And what had they overcome? What adversity had they faced that allowed them to support us when we face ours? Hello, Calvin, and welcome to Conversations with Ourselves. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us today. So just so our listeners can have a sense of who you are, where you're from, Please share with us a little bit of your background and your story, because I know you as a Londoner, an actor, someone who associates socially with some of the finest members of London society and happens to be quite a superstar amongst those who love you and have known you for quite some time. Well, what a lovely introduction. I come from quite humble beginnings. I was born in London in the 1960s, in Stepney, so I'm a true EastEnder. Had an interesting childhood in as much as very early on, my mother died when I was four years old, leaving my father to bring up four children. I was the middle child. And the experience around my mother's death was traumatic to say the least, in as much as a four-year-old boy trying to understand where their mother has gone to was something that really did shape much of my life. And I suggest have to preface it because my father was unable at that time to speak about what had happened to my mother. So we children were left really to our own devices to understand, we knew she was dead, but we had to understand what that really meant for us because my father was emotionally absent at that time. So, Would you say his absence was because of the grief that he was also experiencing? Yes, I, I later discovered that through having a conversation with him just before he died. And he explained to me what it was like for him having to bring up four children without their mother and why he kept much of my mother's or how he experienced my mother's death to himself. But it created a very strange dynamic between myself and my father because his silence in a way created a wall Mm -hmm. which I always wanted to try and penetrate. Mm. And that penetration would come through you know, quite prying questions, bit of belligerence, stubbornness, you know, particularly in my teens, I remember. Um, And I know that was, you know, as much as I was irritated with my father, I'm sure I irritated him at times. Mm. So growing up in East London then was, it was an extraordinary experience when I think about it, because we were the only black family on the estate in Hackney, where we lived. And for the most part, my brother, my older sister and I, and my younger brother, we were latchkey kids. My father would go out to work. He did shift work. He worked for um, a company called John Dale. I'm not quite sure what they made, but he would do shifts two to 10 or 10 to two. And we would come home from school and the key would be on a string behind the letterbox. We would let ourselves in. And if my father had gone to work that afternoon, he would leave our tea on the table with our names on it. And we would help ourselves. And on a Friday evening, we would wait, we were allowed to wait up for him. 
made him some porridge, semolina porridge or cornmeal porridge and he'd come home with fish and chips and we'd be all huddled. I remember huddling under blankets watching Hammer House of Horror films <laughs> until he came home. We were all quite young, we were all under 10 years old, but we were quite self-sufficient. And we I had quite an adventurous childhood as well, because it, the fact that we were left to our own devices for so long meant that we had lots of outside playing time. So particularly during the summer holidays, my brother and I would, with the other boys on the estate, go down to the local Hackney Marshes, where we would literally spend all day wading in the streams, skinny dipping in the reservoir, picking blackberries, getting stung by stinging nettles. And it was a wonderful time, but that time was really masking a lot of pain that I was experiencing. Mm. Children have an uncanny way of just shutting out Definitely feelings of abandonment. And I cannot describe to you what that has been like. I will try. From a very, very early age, I suffered with my abandonment manifested in anxiety. Lots of anxiety, uh, which I lived with. I thought it was normal. Gosh. I thought it was normal. Um, so from a very, very young age, I had these feelings of anxiety that followed me all the way through my teens, my adulthood, and you know, they didn't get resolved until many, many, many years later. And that was compounded by the fact that not long after my mother died, my father employed someone or brought somebody into the family home to look after the children. And this woman was abusive. Physically, emotionally? Physically abusive. She couldn't cope with the responsibility of bringing four, you know, bringing up four children. And I got the most, I got the brunt of her frustration. So, not only was I dealing with the loss of my mother, very close on that, after that, I experienced very, very violent physical abuse, which fractured my psyche. That's the only way I can describe it. So, I have grown up with feelings of abandonment, and this fractured psyche manifested itself in feelings of not being worthy. So most of my childhood growing up was trying to find ways to be worthy. And what ways did you find? Well, I was very popular as a kid and I was very creative and I Remember from a very early age, I'm learning from school about theatre. And one of the ways I used to entertain myself really was by making my own cardboard theatres out of cornflakes boxes. Of course. With draw curtains. I made my own puppets and I would create a world for myself in my bedroom. And I'm talking about, I wasn't even quite 10 yet. Or I would bring all the local kids from the estate into the bedroom. And with the radio, I would then choreograph them. I hadn't entered dancing <laughs> school myself, but somehow I was, I wanted to create theater. And so, and this was, you know, looking back now, it, they were the seeds that propelled me into the world of theatre when I actually did start to perform. And I actually started to perform when I was 11, professionally, as a boy soprano at school. And then, you know, it subsequently ended up with me going to a local dance school, 
a local stage school, which I put through myself because my father wasn't having it. Any particular reason why he wasn't having it? Well, my father was very pragmatic. Right. I put food on the table. I put clothes on your back. Yeah. And that was, that was his stance. He wasn't a man of many words. Mm. He was incredibly strict. I was frightened of him, but I wasn't frightened of being me with him. Right. If you see what I yes, mean. Absolutely. Because I had quite a strong will as a child. So when I decided that, I think age 11, that I was going to go to dancing school, and I asked him to pay for it, and he said no, I proceeded to find a local paper round. I lied to the news agent, told him I was 12 when I was 11, you had to be 12. Got a paper round with my first wages, bought my first pair of tap shoes, went down to the dancing school that was then at Hackneywick. And for a whole year, I went to dancing school every Saturday morning without my father knowing. And then once I'd taken my first set of exams, I came home and I plonked all my medals on the table. And that's when he realised, okay, he's serious. Yes. Um, And I started acting around that time as well. So quite early on, it was clear to you that you were drawn to the arts. You were creative in theatre mm. and dancing was also going to be part of that in some mm. shape or form. And so did you continue on this path or did you as some take another road until... Yeah, very, very early on. I mean, at school, I was in every school production. Yeah. I was in Oliver Twist as one of Fagin's boys. I was then in the production Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat which fortunately was very connected to Android Webber's West End production because Android Webber at the time was looking for 12 boys to do the soprano parts for his West End show and came to our school to choose the boys and I was one of those boys. So that's how I actually, you know, went from being just a local sort of guy wanting to do it into the real world of theatre. Amazing. So just to sort of circle back a moment, I'm curious, do you think that part of the abandonment you felt and the abuse that you had experienced supported this becoming more interested in creating an alternate world, an alternate reality that you could in some way be in control of? Whereas you couldn't so much in the world that you were living in, particularly at home. Yes. And what I liked about the world of theatre and of performance was it was an escape. Yes. Because I was constantly harbouring feelings of fear and anxiety. Um, Looking back now, these were also coupled with a sense of self-loathing a little bit. Mm. Um, as a child, I don't know if you've noticed here, I got badly scarred on, your neck. on my neck. Um, I got burnt when I was four years old, just before my mother died. That, and spent many, many months in hospital. Mm. And my father, in his wisdom, used to dress me all the time in roller neck, turtleneck sweaters. Mm. So from a very, very early age, I felt the shame of having this burn. Oh. So it was, it's kind of a, a bit of a paradox, really, that I would want to enter the world of theatre. To be seen. To be seen, when I have something that I want to hide or felt like I needed to hide it. Well, this is the, I find the interesting beauty of life is the paradox of it. You know, whether it's the making that internal bold stance to do the complete opposite of what is going on internally, and it repeats itself so often in so many places, it almost doesn't bear thinking about. But yes, I think particularly from 
many of the people that I've found working in the arts, this was a place to be distracted or removed from the trauma and the challenges and the difficulties of everyday life. And there was a freedom and a liberty. Suffice to say, there were also difficulties in the creative world because that's where a lot of traumatised people go. Yes. I was quite fortunate that I found um, a very good tutor, a woman to study with, Anna Scher. Oh, fantastic. And so I attended Anna Scher's classes twice a week from, a, you know, from the age of 11 or 12. And it was an incredible education because she really valued every child yeah. that came to her school, her classes. And we were all just ordinary kids and we would arrive armed with our 10 pence or our 10p to pay for class. But the education she gave us was one that could be taken into the world of theatre or film or television. So I was in the same class as people like Pauline Quirk, Linda Robson, Phil Daniels, Gillian Tailforth, just Kathy Burke. Mm. So many of us mm. went to that school just as ordinary kids and were able to establish careers as actors. Well, it's a real testament to Anna Scher herself yes. that she produced that degree of success consistently. Yes, yes. So when I said to my father, I think age 16 or 17, that I was going to leave school and become an actor, he was dead against it. You know, get a proper job. Mm. But by this time, I'd already started to, you know, I had, Anna was my agent. Okay. Um, I had worked, I think by this time, not only was Andrew Lloyd Webber, I danced at the Royal Opera House. I had worked with quite a few notable directors that even appeared on television. So I knew in my heart, this is what I wanted to do. So from the heart place of doing it, how was the experience for you? It was the time when I was most free. Yeah. And it was magical. Yeah. Did it alleviate your sense of fear and panic and anxiety? For those moments when I was on stage or rehearsing, yes, definitely. So it's very but, powerful. Yes, but there was always this undercurrent. There was always this undertone of sadness mm -hmm. that followed me. A lot of the roles that I played at the time were to be, you know, were troubled kids. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the plays that I was actually cast in were people who had trouble, you know, mm -hmm. they were traumatised. I could conjure up that character quite easily. Someone who was emotionally bereft. Yes. Not surprisingly. Yes. I mean, I always find it fascinating how in the general public attitude, it's easy to be sort of poo-poo-pa-pa dismissive of the mother's influence until a child loses their mother. And we can somehow find a place to go, oh, well, it's understandable then that they would feel sad. Missing all the time, how significant this first and very early relationship we have, because our relationship starts from the moment we're conceived and we're within her body, so already there's a very, very close and strong attachment on the felt sense. Mm. So. I mean, the loss, the yearning, the feelings of yearning and loss were palpable. Yeah. I can see looking at you now, they're still very present. Yes. And, and, and they were, you know, so the, the anxiety, the fear, the loss. There were times when I just, you know, wanted to run away, hide away. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry for the loss you experienced. Because I think that we have uh, an obligation as a society to be much kinder to understanding that loss. As we know, there are people in the 
very high profile positions, even in the royal family, who have experienced this kind of loss. Yet the media can go about bashing and bashing these people as if they're not humans, mm. as if, oh, we own you, we pay taxes for you, and that gives them a right to just steamroller over this deep and most profound of traumas. Mm. I mean, no one, unless you have experienced the loss of a parent, particularly as a child, it is one of the most painful. Yeah. I was quite close to my mother, yeah. from what I understand. I can't remember everything, but I've seen photographs of me and her together at big family weddings. My mother was very classically dressed, and she would have, you know, a 50s frock on and a shawl. And I would always be peeping out from behind the shawl. What a wonderful image. So I understood why I felt the way I did, because I was so incredibly close to her. Yeah. And I was young. Yeah. I mean, I remember rocking myself to sleep, Zeta. Mm. As a three, four-year-old, five-year-old, not being able to settle when I was being put to bed. Mm. And I'd have to rock myself because I felt as though I was suspended in midair. Mm. And there was nothing beneath my feet to make me feel safe. That's a very, very powerful description of the depth of the loss. Mm. And so when I was performing, I could push that feeling aside for the moment. But definitely as soon as that curtain came down on the last performance, if it was a, a show that I was in, the feelings would be back. Mm. Yeah. And again, one can also sense why one wants to almost continue to stay in that other place where life is slightly safer or feels more supportive mm. than the reality of what's actually going on. And you, you talk about reality. My reality was so chaotic and so unstable. Mm -hmm. When I was on stage or performing, I was ordered. I knew how to mark my script. Mm -hmm. I knew how to prepare for a, a character. But in my home life, I left home eventually when I was about 21, because my father just couldn't bear me anymore. You were too much of too a much. Mother, yeah. your mother for him, perhaps? Perhaps. But I was, you know, I, could, I didn't know how to, to save. I didn't know how to, to pay rent. I was always in debt. So my real world was a shambles. You know, it's, it's almost, it's a blessing that I'm here today, really. Mm. Because the only time I felt I ever had any control of my life was when I was in the unreal world of theatre. Mm. It's taken me many, many years to get to a place where I feel like an adult. Well, it's amazing then that you've arrived, because few do. Mm where I feel like an adult. And I've had to sacrifice a lot to become that adult. Uh, um, like what? Give an example. Well, I had to sacrifice my acting career. Can you explain or this, um, expand on this a little bit more? Well, by the time I got to my mid-30s, I had almost like a, a dilemma. And the dilemma was you either grow up, get some responsibility, get a proper job, or continue as an actor, not really knowing whether you're ever going to have any money, not knowing really whether you're going to be successful enough. And I was just confronted with this dilemma and I just thought, you know what, I want stability. Mm. I want security. And with that, took a complete detour and went back to university. Oh, wow. And uh, went to Goldsmiths and I studied a degree in English and theatre, obviously. Obviously. 
And that completely changed my life. And even as much as I was studying theatre, it was from an academic perspective. When I left uni, I went more into the production and the behind the scenes of theatre, working with young theatre companies, teaching, developing ideas, and was able to start to eke out a career for myself where I had security and money. And the more I did that was the more experience I gained at being able to organise and set up. And one thing just led to another. And I just got drawn into project management and project development. And it created a security for me to the point where when I bought my first, my flat, um, which was an impossibility before, You know, I was dedicated and committed to making that work. So you found a way to parent yourself out of absolute necessity. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, I remember being told that, that I, you know, I've had therapy over the years. Yeah. And one of the things I remember being told many, many times is you have to parent the little Kelvin. Yes. The abandoned Kelvin. Yes. The Kelvin that feels bereft. Yes. So what type of therapy did you explore, if you don't mind me asking? Very, very early on, I did like a psychodynamic form of therapy. So similar to what I did. Yes. And it helped a bit. Yeah. But the therapy that has been most influential in my life is my Buddhist practice. Interesting. I became a Buddhist in 1984 Mm. and it changed my life and Buddhism is very akin to Jungian therapy it believes in cause and effect and teaches you know the idea that one has a powerful being inside Mm. and all you have to do is unlock that being and that and that being, that ca- the characteristics of this being is courage, compassion, and wisdom. Mm. And that then became my quest. That's what I wanted. Mm. Because the reality of my life, which was, could have spiraled completely out of control, mainly into addiction. Mm. I needed to take the reins on that. Yeah. And Buddhism has been the single most important source to me harnessing that part of my life that is invincible. Mm. And what type of Buddhism is this that you practice? I practice the Buddhism of Nichiren Daishonin. Right. And I chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. Aha. And do you chant on your own or do you chant with others? I chant on my own and I sometimes chant with others. Okay. And what does the, what's the translation of the chant? Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. Nam means to devote. Yes. Myoho. Myo is mystic. Ho is manifest. Mm-hmm. So I devote my life to the mystic and manifest aspects of life. Renge symbolizes the law of cause and effect, Mm. or the lotus flower. The lotus flower is said to seed and bloom at the same time, and it also grows out of a muddy pond. And kyo is thread or link or universality. So translated, Namyoha Renge Kyo, I devote my life to the mystic law of cause and effect that exists in the universe in time without beginning. Sounds beautiful. Mm. And just tell me, because um, I don't know much about this, is it is this a for Chinese form of Buddhism or a Japanese? It's a Japanese form of Buddhism. Right. It originated in Japan in the 13th century mm-hmm. by a monk called Nichiren Daishonin. Yeah. And he was an incredible man, really, because a bit like me, 
he had many, many obstacles to overcome. To overcome. But he was driven by a sense of wanting to create value for himself and others. That's a wonderful path to be on. Hmm. One of the finest. Yes. And I wish you well on that path. So we've got a broad sense of where you've come from and what's shaped and influenced you from quite an early age and how it still influences you today. So you've done your master's degree. <laughs> Thank you. And you are a grown-up with a flat of your own. You've graduated from university. Then what happens in the world of Kelvin? Wow, that's a very big question. It is. Oh. I love big questions for this reason. <laughs> you can go anywhere you like with it. Well, I think because I've touched on Buddhism, one of the things that Buddhism teaches, Buddhism teaches that it's very important to share the teachings with others. And very early in my practice, I was able to share this teaching with a very important person in my life. And his name was Henry Tennant. Henry Tennant. Henry Tennant. Okay. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the Tennant family or Lord and Lady Glen Connor. I've heard of, uh, there was model Stella Tennant. Stella Tennant. Yeah, that's a distant, that's, that's a cousin. Okay. But I met Henry Tennant through quite unusual circumstances, but not a coincidence. I'd been making a film in the Caribbean with Michael Caine and... As you do. I, you know, I just <laughs> throw that on it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Carrie, okay. and, um, and Billy Connolly and a host of other wonderful actors. And when I came back to England, I was in a health club talking to this gentleman about what I'd just been doing during the summer. And it just happened that the island that I shot the film on and the place where I shot the film was very co closely connected to this person, who was Henry. It was actually his father's land that we shot lots of the film on. I see. So I wanted to speak to Henry about Buddhism. <laughs> as you do. As you do. And as I was speaking to him about Buddhism and, you know, telling him stories about my acting career as well, something clicked mm. and we just knew i knew in my heart that this was more than just a chance encounter mm. anyway he invited me to dinner a week later all i knew was that his name was henry tennant i knew nothing else he gave me the address of where he lived i arrived at the address and i remember very distinctly looking at the doorbell and seeing, I knew it was the correct address, but the name on the buzzer didn't bear any reference to what I knew. So I went back down the road. I spent about half an hour trying to find this address. Then eventually plucked up the courage, knocked on this door, which had on the buzzer, Lord and Lady Glen Connor. Right. And I said, do you happen to know where somebody called Henry Tennant lives? And the person who answered all said, oh, he lives here. So I, was in, I went in, and of course, Henry was having a lovely dinner party, lots of people there. And that was the beginning of our friendship. Mm. It was a very, very, very special friendship, very close friendship, because he was the first person I introduced to Buddhism. Mm. But it, it was special in the sense that we were so diametrically, seemingly opposites. Seemingly opposite in what way? Well, in the sense that he was, came from a titled family. Mm. His family were, for, you know, for all intents and purposes, very wealthy, mm. very connected to the royal family. Mm. And here was I, an East End boy, who had done good with his life, 
But we just came from completely different worlds and here we were thrown together because I wanted to share my Buddhism with him. It's fascinating though, isn't it? We put so much importance on privilege as if somehow it's a buffer to our humanity and our capacity for compassion mm. or kindness or our experience of trauma or our pain or our suffering. Mm. There's no money that can protect one, so you may have seemingly, on very superficial planes, be diametrically opposed, but... On the deeper level, we were so similar. Right, of course. We were so similar because Henry had experienced his own trauma. Yeah. And that's where we connected. Mm. We connected at the level of our trauma and at the heart. The most tender part of who you Yes. And the reason why um, he was so special to me was he was gay. Right. I'm gay. Right. And it seemed like the most obvious thing that we were going to be lovers. Right. But we were never lovers. We loved each other. But it was like, you know, he was not my type. <laughs> Isn't it funny? You always have to qualify that because there's this assumption that all gay men fancy each other, which we would never presume in a heterosexual world. So mm. I, I mm. thank you for sharing that piece yeah. of information. That wasn't even the assumption mm -hmm. I made. I got the sense from listening to you that it was about a very valuable and meaningful French, mm. contact. And I've never told this story so explicitly over the years because of the interest in the Glen Connors and the Tennant family. There have been times when the press have wanted me to talk about my relationship with Henry or have assumed what my relationship with Henry was. The lover. Sensationalising. Sensationalising, exactly, exactly. Let me imagine, here it is now, mm. black gay lover with aristocrats. Yes. Kapow! Yeah, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, that stuff sells. Yeah, but behind the scenes, I knew Henry's pain, mm. and he knew my pain, mm. and we became inseparable. How wonderful. Inseparable. He got me, and I got him. So armed was my very, very, very brief knowledge of Buddhism, I decided that I was really going to create a friendship for the first time that had no real, no other condition other than I just want to really love and be your friend and support you in any way I can. It's very pure and clean without an agenda. Yes. And I had many experiences very early on where I had to test that. Right. Because Henry was diagnosed with HIV mm. very, very early into our friendship. And I remember when he was going to the Hospital for Tropical Diseases for tests. Whatever that used to be over in King's Cross. Yes. yes. And I didn't really know him that well, but I knew something was going on. And I remember him coming home from the hospital. And I said, well, what have the, no, I actually went and visit him in hospital. And I said, what have the tests found? And he said, well, they haven't found anything. And at this time, AIDS wasn't very well known as, a, as an illness right. or a disease. In my heart, I knew it was something very serious. And I just said to Henry, look, don't worry, come home, go home and I will look after you. And so he went back to the family home in Hill Lodge. And it wasn't until a year later that he was diagnosed with HIV. But during that time, I had spent a lot of, a lot of time trying to get him to chant with me to really give him the spiritual strength to deal with whatever it was was going to confront him. Some sort of secure foundation yes. in which to stand. Yes, yeah. yeah. So the exchange always between Henry and myself was one of spiritual awareness, and revealing, helping each other to reveal the greater self. 
What a wonderful foundation for a friendship. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if more of us had friendships yeah. like that? Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing about that. And so you remained friends for, we, uh, as I understand, he died. Yes, we remained friends right up until he died. Um, he died in 1990, January the 2nd. Mm-hmm. And between the time of meeting until his death, we had, you know, a lifetime of friendships. We traveled the world together. We experienced highs and lows. He brought me into his family, so I'm still to this day very close to his family and his son, who's now 33. And that experience changed my life again. Mm. But I don't think it would have happened had I not encountered Buddhism to expand my life. Because mm. that's what Buddhism does. You know, you might have a view of the path where you're on and where you're going. And what Buddhism does is just keeps on pushing the walls of limitation apart. And if you think it's achievable, Buddhism will say, yes, it is, but there is more. And that more is about going deeper into the self. Because for as long as we breathe, we must be constantly developing. And if we've arrived, then what's the purpose? Mm. So Buddhism teaches you to constantly go deeper and deeper mm. and use your life experiences to inspire and help others. So would you say, because you brought it up as a way of resolving the trauma of the past, is, where is your anxiety and depression now? Would you say it's healed or it's in process? It's, it's I would say it's, 99.9% healed. Wonderful. Um, I think my last therapy, uh, bout of therapy, was last year, which was very specific. It was CBT therapy, very time limited and very focused on this anxiety that I was feeling at the time that was triggered by a very dear person dying, surprisingly. And Feelings of self-worth again. And I suffered two nervous breakdowns in my life. Mm. And both when I was practicing Buddhism. So we actually call them nervous breakthroughs. Or healing crises. Yeah, healing crises, yeah. And both of those experiences were like being reborn into a place where I felt much more whole and much stronger. So even though they're traumatic at the time, on the other side, there was more confidence, Mm. there was more resilience, Mm. and there was more wisdom. Well, that certainly makes a lot of sense. We often forget that in order to release trauma momentarily, we have to experience it again. Of course, it's not to the same degree as the first time. Mm. Well, I realised that I suffered with PTSD. Yes. I didn't realise that. Yeah. I didn't realise that these feelings of the constant feelings of anxiety and depression was post-traumatic stress. Yeah. And in order to alleviate, I had to go through the eye of the storm. Yeah. So when I had my first breakthrough or healing crisis, I literally relived my mother's death. Yes. And the physical abuse that I experienced. Well, a lot of people often don't understand, I mean, I work in trauma therapy, is at the moment the trauma is experienced, our body is frozen. And now if you look at animals, they don't have to go to therapy and they don't get into fights and they don't get into global wars Mm -hmm. because they constantly release the trauma and carry on. We stay stuck, frozen in the pattern. So that when it comes time to eventually release it, you have to continue the journey through the rest of the trauma for it to go all the way through. Sadly, we have a tendency to medicate and medicate and medicate, so we suppress it further and it becomes more compacted and held within the body. So I'm really, really 
relieved and happy to hear that you were brave and courageous enough to go through it and come through the other side, surviving brighter and stronger and, dare I say it, a little bit more handsome. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that too. I think compliments are wonderful things and that they heal us all, all the time. So, as we're getting uh, into this conversation, what are the things I really want to kind of get in before we have to go our separate ways? Is where are you now? And the result of this extraordinary journey that you've gone through from the, the most profound of painful experiences I think that any human can have is the loss of mother. At any age, it's terrible, but particularly as a child, it has such a deep impact that when I meet people who have been adopted, my heart literally almost stops for the degree of that loss and not knowing that four is itself such a tender. As you're telling the story, I just have this image of you in shorts and me by socks, you know, a little flat cap looking really quite lost. And Yeah, that, that's the image. Mm. So, where are you today? Where am I today? I, I, I believe that life is in cycles or there's a rhythm to life. Uh, whether it's the five-year rhythm or the seven-year rhythm or the 14-year. And I feel that I'm at a place now where I want to bring together all of this experience of life into one place. Mm. And this place is the place of the artist the creative. I spent many years, I say that there was a sacrifice, and a part of my sacrifice in not acting, what I did during the time was I was in service. I was in service. I, that was the only, it's the only way I can describe it, whether it's looking after homeless people or people with addiction or people who are ill. I went into service mm -hmm. to share my life um, in a positive way. And I feel now that it's not that I'm not going to be in service anymore. The service will have a different characteristic. Mm. And I'll be serving through my voice and my performance. And presence. And my presence, exactly. So that's where I'm at now. And I'm really realising more and more each day how precious life is. So despite what the experience is, even those experiences that are really painful, tempered with the right philosophy or understanding, everything has value. I completely agree. Everything. And that, when I get into those tricky moments, I say to myself, even Donald Trump. Because, you know, that's going into Zen Master, <laughs> given what the rest of the world will have to say. Even that being has value. Absolutely. And if you can't see it, you are off on space dust. Yes, I totally agree with you. And so, uh, you know, I feel very fortunate that I have a perspective of the world that is tempered with experience and wisdom, because wisdom only is born out of experience not knowledge, because knowledge is like technology and technology can become redundant. Wisdom is always fresh and new because it comes out of... Well, it's the transformation of trauma. When the coin mm. turns over from the pain, what is revealed is what was learned from the challenge, the difficulty, the struggle, the adversity, and overcoming mm. comes wisdom. Mm. So I feel that I want to and why I'm here is to share my story yeah. in, the, you know, in the best way that I can, whether it's through the spoken word, whether it's through writing, whether it's through acting, you know, speaking to my nieces and nephews, because you quite rightly pointed out, many of us come from a generation where we weren't spoken to. Yeah. But, you know, we had to kind of divine our way through the stories of our ancestry. Absolutely. Well, I think we are, the 50 plus year olds, we are the last generation 
who would have had the opportunity to hear directly from the source of the last slaves listening our stories. So we still hold the trauma, but we also hold the solutions. Mm -hmm. And um, I know the kids want to say, okay, boomer, mm. but without us and our stories and our solutions, they will be sunk and destined to struggle in ways more painful than even we knew. They'll mm. repeat the past of yeah. the last 400 mm. years, mm. without a doubt. So I'm so glad that you have come here and been so generous of heart and mind and soul and spirit to share your story. Because what's most important about it, other than the loss and the pain and the challenge and the difficulty, is the resolution. We tell stories because we seek to find a solution which is like a ripe fruit hanging on the tree at the end of autumn. It's sweet, it's tender and it's juicy and we must pluck it. And you have brought that, that through this journey of your life and your so-called humble beginnings, <laughs> you have tra traversed all levels and stratas of British society and you have traversed all levels of pain, sorrow, suffering, and the beauty of its expression and transformation. There's this wonderful image of the peacock, its feathers being symbols of the swords of pain that it has swallowed. And here you sat, and there's a beautiful peacock, which I'm sure any German street tailor would be delighted <laughs> to dress. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And you're going back to the stage and to the theatre to honour us and grace us with your talents and skills as a writer, as an orator, as an actor, and as a teller of a fine yarn. <laughs> I totally agree. Thank you. And it's been such a pleasure to have you here. Kelvin Omard. Isn't That's that correct. wonderful? A yes. Caribbean man with an Irish name. Yes, yes. I know. <laughs> it, it always scuppers people when I actually arrive and they realise that I don't have ginger hair and pasty skin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know there too is a story that will be told and I would love for you to come back, but... Are there any final parting words of wisdom that you would like to share with the audience today before we sign off? Yes. The words, life is precious. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it.